0: Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. I took my second final today, so I only have one left thank goodness. (laughs) Oh boy. Thank you for tuning in. I don't really have a lot to say before I dive in. In terms of scandal updates, there is a lot going on with Chris Cuomo, or Cuomo, however you say it, with uh, him being fired from CNN and then his dad or whatever, New York, I think, I don't know. Hold on, okay it was his brother and he was helping him like hide sexual abuse things apparently so that's not great. Um, Other than that I really haven't been keeping up with a lot as last time finals are going on but I have one left and then I am free for winter break. So wish me luck on this last one, it is the hardest one and yeah I think with that we should just dive right in. Um, this episode was suggested to me by my friend, Izzy, um, hey Izzy, she is, she's a chemistry major, she graduated, uh, she was my roommate for three years in college, and I had never heard of this scandal before, and she texted me a couple ideas, and she was like, hey, you should look into this one, there was a pharmacist in Kansas City who potentially killed a bunch of people, and I was thinking, like, the pharmacist went crazy and, like, shot up a bunch of people? No. Way worse than that, if you can imagine. So Izzy, thank you so much for suggesting this episode. And with that, let's dive into a deadly pharmacist in Kansas City, Robert Courtney. One of the main articles I use for my research is from the New York Times, written by Robert Draper, called The Toxic Pharmacist. Robert was born, I'm just gonna call him by his first name, Robert was born in Hayes, Kansas in 1952 and from this article and some other things I read it doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of exciting things going on in his childhood. Um, His dad was a preacher, which kind of plays in later just because he becomes super involved in his church, but other than that there's really nothing notable from his childhood. It sounds pretty average. He became a pharmacist in 1975, and then in 1986, he was about 34 at the time, he asked his boss, who he was working for, to sell the pharmacy that he worked in to him. And that pharmacy was in the research medical tower in Kansas City. So he acquired that one pharmacy, doing pretty well for himself, and then he acquired a second pharmacy in Merriam, Kansas. Believe it or not, (laughs) having two pharmacies, it means you really don't struggle with money all that much. Not that you're going to be like a multi-billionaire, but you're definitely, (laughs) you're going to have a decent amount of money. And that was very much the case for Robert. He drove a Mercedes and he had a house in Tremont or Tremont. Tremont Tremont Manor in Kansas City. so Rich, I can't pronounce it. Um, but it is a very wealthy, rich neighborhood to live in, and I looked up pictures of it, and it's just a bunch of houses that are all fancy. It has stone and, like, gray stone and big driveways, and it's just a bunch of McMansion-looking homes. From his first marriage, he had two kids, and then in 1990, he got divorced from his wife, and he ended up getting custody of his kids. And just to show you a little bit about the money he had, he had to pay, well, he didn't have to, he paid like, I don't know, I guess he probably had to, but he paid his his ex-wife a lump sum of $196,000 as a part of their divorce agreement. So he was able to shell out almost $200,000 as part of a divorce agreement. That is a lot of money, <laughs> but so he's doing pretty well for himself. After that divorce, he was like, dang, remember that really pretty girl that I grew up with and that I've known since childhood? He was like, hmm, I wonder, I would, I would like to, uh, I would like to connect with her again. <laughs> how they met is her dad was also a preacher when they were kids, so that's how they knew each other. So they started visiting each other, I believe if I'm remembering correctly, she was from Detroit and he's living in Kansas City at the time. He gave her a lot of gifts, such as his ex-wife's jaguar, so very fancy. He took her out in horse-drawn carriages, and two months into the relationship, gave her a four-carat diamond ring. I don't know how much four carats is worth, but I know that half a carat? (laughs) <laughs> is a lot of money, and I'm sure four of them is a ton of money. I just know that, like, when I go to the store, I you know for three dollars I can get a whole bag of baby carrots. So, but um, thank you very much. I'll be here all day. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. uh uh um, uh, um. Okay, so two months in, he gave her four carat diamond ring. They were supposed to get married on Valentine's Day in 1991, but they eloped around Christmas time a couple months before, so they're getting married, or they are married, cool beans for those two. Except maybe not cool beans, because Robert's second wife said that she regretted marrying him, Shortly after their marriage, he didn't let her wear casual clothing around the house. He was apparently always dressed up. He was always wearing, quote, dress slacks and striped button downs, end quote, which like, cool, good for you, wear whatever you want. But if your partner is wanting to, I don't know, throw on a pair of sweats, (laughs) you know, or even just jeans, which I guess maybe is dressed down from slacks, just let them, like let them live their life. She said, quote, he wanted my hair, my clothes, my nails to be perfect like a doll on a shelf, end quote. He told her not to gain any weight and she was a size three, which I'm and like, everyone's like, um, I'm a double size zero, which I mean, I think is like really, really small. So size three, I would assume is also pretty small. I don't know what sizes are in that measurement. I just know like, from a guy's perspective what waist size is, but I'm pretty sure size 3 is pretty small. But he was like, don't gain any weight, and he also told her that she had to get a new car, which I'm assuming that he was going to give her money for, but he said, quote, as long as you're married to me, you'll drive a BMW, end quote. If your significant other wants to buy you a car, that's great, like, that is a... A lot of, I think a lot of people would like to have a car bought for them. But if the reason why your significant other is wanting to buy you a car is so it doesn't hurt their image, then in my mind, I think that's when it's a little, yikes, not the best thing in the world. <laughs> She also said about him that he had all of this money, which we've kind of established. He has this big house. He's wanting her to get this new car. He's always dressed up. And also he's a pharmacist with two pharmacies. He's doing pretty well for himself, but even though he had all of this money, he was super, super cheap. For example, he was always complaining that his parents were trying to get money from him, but she didn't ever see any evidence of that. And then further, when they went out to eat, quote, he asked his wife not to order her own dish, but rather eat off his own plate, end quote. Okay, here's the thing. You have two pharmacies and a big house and presumably a nice car, and you can afford to buy your wife a four-carat diamond ring after, what, two months of dating? And I mean, they knew each other since kids, but you're going to buy someone a ring to a four carat diamond ring two months after you're dating, if you, in my mind, if you have all of that money, you can allow your wife to order her own dish and, pay for it because you seemingly have a lot of money and i'm not against sharing dishes i went out to dinner a couple of weeks ago with my significant other maybe a month ago whatever doesn't matter and we went to this mexican restaurant and the plates there were kind of pricey like 20 25 bucks for a main entree but also the entrees were huge and then the restaurant had free chips and salsa and everyone knows when you go to a Mexican restaurant, you always fill up on the free chips and salsa and then you end up having a ton of leftovers. So that's what we did. We just ate a bunch of free chips and salsa and then just got one entree and just split it, which I'm all for that. Like if you want to do that, save some money, definitely go ahead. But if you're forcing your significant other because you're cheap to eat off of your plate, when you have buckets of money, (laughs) the Yeah, it just does not make sense to me. But as we'll see, he is not the best person in the world. So all of these things are going on. He's cheap. He's, (laughs) it's weird to call a rich person really cheap, but also maybe that's why they stay rich is because they become cheap. They don't want to lose their money. He's cheap. He's has this kind of concerning behavior, but eventually she sees him become kind of scary, including hitting his daughter at home and yelling at his daughter in public. If you yell at your kids in public other than just like, hey, get over here, we're leaving. If you're gonna loudly reprimand your kids in public, first of all, no one wants to hear it, so go somewhere else. But also in my mind, I think it looks a little trashy but she saw all of that happening, him being abusive to his daughter, him yelling at her in public, so she left him pretty quickly, and within a couple of months, their marriage was annulled. In 1994, about three years after the second marriage, he got married a third time to someone named Laura, and they so yeah, she, they got married, nothing really significant. Just going off of this dichotomy of him being cheap, but also having a lot of money, him and Laura were drawing up plans for a new 5,000 square foot home, and the home never went into existence, but it's the fact that you're drawing up these plans for a 5,000 square foot home, but yet you didn't want your other wife to order a dish at a restaurant? (laughs) Okay. The architect that they were working with said that Robert did most of the talking and Laura, quote, seemed to mostly be an observer, end quote. As has been established throughout this whole episode, he has a lot of money and with a lot of this money, he donated a lot of it and he donated, a lo- he donated a lot of it to his church where he was very, very involved. He pledged $1 million to the church's building fund, and that was gonna be paid over three years, and he was also a soloist in the church choir. And then remember, he uh, his dad was a preacher growing up, so it seems like religion was a pretty important part of his life, which also is kind of interesting when you hear about what he did. Even though pharmacists make a decent amount of money, like if you're a pharmacist, I would assume you're definitely not gonna be struggling paycheck to paycheck on on the average basis, but the money that Robert had and the money that Robert was throwing around, donating, having all these nice cars, it was way, way more than one would expect an average pharmacist to have. One way he was able to make more money than what was expected is, quote, he began to buy prescription medications from a retired pharmaceutical rep through the so-called gray market, legitimate drugs acquired outside the supply chain, end quote. So what he would do is he would acquire these drugs with cash, he would mark them up and then sell them. And it definitely seemed like that was a pretty quick and easy way for him to make some extra cash along the side And also, it's illegal. (laughs) In some of the articles I read, it seems like this is likely where his criminal activity started. And talking about his salary, just for reference, his income reported in 1990 was listed at $48,000, which even today is still, you know, not a terrible salary, but in 1990, it's definitely a good amount. But at the time of his arrest, 11 years later, he had assets worth $18.7 million on a salary of $48,000. So that just goes to show you how much this guy was doing illegal things. Not only was Robert getting drugs from the gray market, reselling them for a marked up price, he was doing something even Worse, I guess, is a way to describe it, but worse does not capture how horrible it is. What he started to do is to dilute drugs, and over his career, he diluted dif- uh, a number, Jesus, he diluted a total of 72 different types of drugs. These drugs included, quote, expensive chemotherapy medication. AIDS drugs, fertility drugs, antibiotics, drugs to prevent nausea, and other, and others to improve blood clotting," end quote. An FBI agent said, quote, basically, if you could mix it or inject it, he diluted it, end quote. Another way he would make money is he would dispense generic drugs, and then he would put the name brand on the generic drugs, and he would sell them for the higher price. He, another thing this superstar would do is, if people couldn't make their co-payment by about five or ten dollars, he would just take a certain amount of pills from the prescription and just sell them later. So he'd be like, well, you know, you've got this bottle of whatever drugs, let me just take what I think is five or ten dollars out of here and then you can just have it. <laughs> That's not okay and then he would sell them later. I don't know how pharmacy were, oh, I should text my cousin. She's in pharmacy school, side thought. But anyways, I'm pretty sure that's not how pharmacists are supposed to handle those situations, but that's the way he handled them. So not only was Robert a criminal in different ways in the pharmacy arena, he also was really, really smart he he wasn't dumb when it came to medicine he knew how medicine worked and he knew how people reacted to medicine for example he knew that studies show that up to 50% of people feel better when treated with placebos one thing he also knew is that one study at the time showed that one or less than one in 5 people who were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, they survived chemo- gemsar chemotherapy at a rate of less than 20%. He knew that if people being treated with Gemzar chemotherapy had pancreatic cancer, there was over an 80% chance that they were going to die. And at his eventual trial, his defense for many things was that regardless of his delusions. His customers were going to die anyway. (laughs) That's just a real, real uh, superstar position to take, you know? Hey, come on, they were gonna... I don't know why he's from the East Coast. Hey, you know, they were gonna die anyway. Is that an East Coast accent? I don't know. I can't... (laughs) He was like, hey, they're gonna die anyway. Why does it matter if I take advantage of them? Not very nice, Mr. Robert Pharmacist man. On top of him being smart with knowing how medication worked, he also knew that there was difficulty tracking medications because there was introduction of medications that were not produced in the United States, so it was nearly impossible to track people who were doing what Robert was doing. One way he got away with it for so long is he would, quote, fend off inquiries from pharmaceutical reps in the Kansas City region about how much of which drugs he was selling, end quote. And basically what I gathered is the pharmaceutical reps, they were to go to these different pharmacists and ask about how many drugs they were prescribing. And then that data would go back to the pharmaceutical company. And then that would kind of determine the commission that the sales reps would make. And what he was doing is he would just basically be like, go away. I'm not getting, I'm not giving you information. But yeah, yeah, he was just being difficult. He wasn't giving off the information or giving away the information. And that was one way he was able to hide what he was doing for so long. Leading to the scu- to the discovery of the actions of Robert, one important character is Daryl Ashley. Daryl Ashley was a sales rep for Eli Lilly, and (laughs) he did not like Robert at all, mainly because he was a jerk, he sent all these people away, he was difficult, so just not a very likable person. It eventually became known to Daryl that Robert was, quote, selling more of Lilly's Gemzar chemotherapy medication to the doctors in the research medical tower than he was buying from Daryl, end quote. So Daryl figured out that, hey, Robert is reporting these numbers of selling the drug that I'm supposed to be selling to him, but Robert, (laughs) he's not buying that much for me, so where the heck is he getting this drug? So Daryl kind of looked around, he was trying to be like, oh, maybe he's getting the drug from a different seller, maybe a different rep is coming through, but he couldn't find anybody. So the question was, where is he getting this medication from? When he couldn't figure out where this medication was coming from, he mentioned this uh, this observation to a nurse who worked for Dr. Verda Hunter. Dr. Hunter then became really, really nervous and she had prescriptions tested that came from Robert's Pharmacy. From those tests, it was revealed that the drugs were diluted, and Dr. Hunter said at the time that when she saw those results, it made her physically sick not because she was taking taking any of the drugs, but because as a doctor, she knew the consequences of people getting diluted drugs, especially drugs that across the board are, are supposed to help people, but especially chemotherapy drugs. So Dr. Hunter, she brings these findings to the attention of the FBI and the FDA, and no one wanted to believe it. Judy Lewis from the FBI said, quote, I think everyone who sat around that table that day had the same feeling, which was, there's got to be another explanation. I don't care how it looks. No one could do this, end quote. So it's not that the FBI or FDA didn't take action. It was the fact that we don't want to believe this is true because this is so morally reprehensible and just plain out evil and awful. How could someone do this, let alone a pharmacist who's entrusted to care, essentially care for patients by prescribing them and giving, well, not prescribing, by giving them the medication that's prescribed to them. You know, doctors, nurses, they're on the front lines, they're important, but pharmacists are entrusted with making sure that you get the right medication for whatever it is you're dealing with, And that's a lot, a lot of trust. And so no one wanted to believe that this pharmacist, who had been a pharmacist for over 20 years at this point, was doing something so awful as diluting medications, including chemotherapy medications. After the FBI and the FDA were informed, Dr. Hunter was persuaded by the federal agents to get in on a sting operation, which personally always sounds so cool to me, I really hope I'm never involved with someone who becomes the target of a federal investigation, but if I am, I would love to be a part of a sting operation. <laughs> I just think it sounds so cool. This isn't about me, this is about Dr. Hunter. She had stopped using the drugs from Robert in uh, in her hospital or doctor's office. I, I couldn't figure out exactly where she worked, but as soon as she realized that these drugs were diluted, she was like, no way, Jose, I'm not ordering any more from him. But as part of the sting operation, they were like, hey, can you order some more prescriptions from him and we will test them. So she ordered six prescriptions from Robert. And when they were tested, each one was diluted between 17 and 39%. After those were tested, two more were ordered just to be sure. And those prescriptions had a concentration level of 28%, 24% and one had basically zero concentration. One was basically just a placebo drug. I don't think it said in the article what exactly the medication was, but regardless of what it is, if you're thinking you're gonna get pain medicine or cancer medicine, chemotherapy drugs, and you basically get a placebo? (laughs) Not okay, to, to say the least. On August 13th, 2001, federal agents swarmed the pharmacy and handed Robert a search warrant. After Robert went outside with two federal agents, they were asking him about the diluted medicine, and he admitted himself that he had mixed them. So without knowing, he kind of admitted to the crime. And then after he admitted that, the federal agents were like, oh, that's interesting because you're the pharmacist we're investigating. And he was like, what? I'm sure he had a different reaction than that, but I watched an oxygen special, which it's season two, episode six, and it's titled Deadly Pharmacist. But in that episode, they were talking about how when the federal agents brought him out, they were saying, oh, there's a pharmacist under investigation. And then after admitting that he had mixed the uh, drugs like that, they told him that, oh, you're the pharmacist under investigation. And they said that his face dropped and the federal agents thought to themselves, oh man, this guy thought he was invincible, this guy thought he would never get caught. And luckily, he did. This information is now coming from a CBS article by Dan Collins, written in 2002. He was arrested in August of 2001, his pharmacy was shut down, and then in February of 2002, he pled guilty to 20 counts of, quote, "...adulterating, misbranding, and tampering with the cancer drugs Taxol and Gemzar. end quote. In his plea, he admitted to diluting drugs since 1992, nine years before his arrest, and this would have affected, quote, "...as many as 4,200 patients, 400 doctors, and 98,000 prescriptions," end quote. Prosecutors said that even though he pled guilty, it did not reflect the full scope of what he had done. In the courtroom uh, during this sentencing and trial, there were a lot of his victims and uh, families of victims who were there, and one of those people was Stephen Coates. He showed a picture of his wife who had passed away. Her name, uh, the name of the wife who had passed away, her name was Evelyn Johnny Coates. Uh, Stephen called her, quote, my rock and inspiration," end quote. She had unfortunately died of cancer shortly before the investigation was made public. An attorney who represented victims suing Robert for civil damages said, quote, "'Robert Courtney, in their, in their opinion, "'is a serial killer in that he diluted "'these life-saving substances. "'They consider this his judgment day.'" End quote. Prosecutors did acknowledge that his delusions may have accelerated, accelerated the death of some and caused the deaths of others, but it would be difficult to prove that Robert was actually responsible for killing anyone. From that oxygen special, they talked about that chemotherapy isn't guaranteed to save someone's life, so it was impossible for the medical experts to say beyond a reasonable doubt that he caused or in other words, killed people because of his actions. And if you'll remember, he was not charged with any sort of like murder or manslaughter charges. He was just charged with like basically fraud and things to do with mislabeling medicine, but there were no, there was no charges based on the deaths of people. He also told prosecutors that he had been diluting stuff ever since he became a pharmacist, which was in 1975, so there's like a little bit of inconsistent information. I just wanted to share both. He said that he had been diluting diluting medicine since he became a pharmacist, whereas in other articles it said he started in 1992, but I'm gonna take his word for it and say that he started when he began as a pharmacist. This next part is, in my opinion, the definition of irony. He said in his trial that a $600,000 tax bill, and guess what else? The final third installment of that one million dollar pledge to his church was part of the reason that he was diluting drugs. His excuse for doing it or part of the reason why he did it was like, oh, I had so much pressure about this big tax bill and all this money that I promised my church and I couldn't go back on that. Um, here's an idea, why don't you sell all of your expensive stuff? like? sell your house. If you want to donate all your money to the church, sell your house. Don't be a dick and dilute people's cancer drugs. He was sentenced to the maximum sentence allowed, 30 years. In an article for NPR by Dan Margolies, written in 2020, Robert was considered for early release due to the COVID-19 pandemic. He was supposed to be released to a halfway house and then, uh, after that, released to home confinement. However, due to a large outcry from many people, that was shot down real quick. Elected officials from Missouri, including Josh Josh Hawley, Emanuel Cleaver II, and even Governor Parsons, all objected to his release. And then before the decision was made to reverse the decision to get him out early, so there was like, oh, maybe he's going to get out early. Then they were like, nope, just kidding. So before the reversal was made, the following was said about Robert by now-retired assistant U.S. attorney Gene Porter, and Gene Porter was the one who prosecuted him. Quote, Robert Courtney withheld potentially life-saving medication from late-stage cancer patients, thereby depriving them of hope for a longer life. With the decision to release him early, he received hope, the very thing that he stole from hundreds, if not thousands, of patients. Given the magnitude of his crimes, he did not deserve to be given such hope, and the families of those he stole hope from are left to wonder, where is justice when the well-considered judicial sentence that survived Courtney's multiple attempts to have it undone can now be overturned by the unreviewable stroke of a bureaucratic pen." End quote. Even though Robert was not convicted of any deaths, medical professionals think he could be responsible for shortening the lives of thousands of people. Robert's assets were seized and they were given to his victims and the families of his victims. Today, Robert Courtney remains in prison. He is 69 years old and he is scheduled to be released in 2027. And that concludes A Deadly Pharmacist in Kansas City. Robert Courtney. Ugh, that episode blew my mind. So first of all, Izzy, thank you for suggesting it. I'm very, I am fascinated with that and also just horrified because how could someone dilute light, literal life-saving drugs, and not just cancer, you know, cancer drugs, chemotherapy drugs, which I mean, that's kind of the most notable thing he did, but he was also diluting AIDS medication and other medication. Um, he was diluting medication that it was life-saving to people so he could make extra money. I just can't believe someone would do that. And now to the personal scandal section. One of my friends, Mandy, sent it in. Thanks, Mandy. Um, so this is the scandal Mandy sent in. It took about fourteen years of my life for me to realize that every member of my family, both sides, in the generation above me, so my parents' generation, are all half siblings. No sibling shares the same mom and dad, which explains why, in hindsight, none of the cousins on each other's side look at all alike. It took a Punnett Square project in high school biology for me to know whose parents were whose for the generation above, and also as to who were actually my blood grandparents. Interestingly enough, the people I refer to as my grandparents on my dad's side are not by blood or by marriage related to me. Uh, Parentheses, there was once a marriage, but that ended before I was ever born, so they've never been related to me in any way. The things you find out later in life, dot, dot, dot. If they're, I guess, I mean, I'll just ask Mandy, but if they're all half siblings, wouldn't they, if they're all in my generation above, every member of my family, both sides, in the generation above me, so my parents' generation are all half siblings. If they're half siblings, wouldn't they still be half blood? Oh, wait, half? I'll have to ask her, because in my mind, if you're all half-siblings, you're all still a little blood-related. I don't know. Maybe I'm not understanding this. But anyways, (laughs) it sounds like... Hey, you know what? Never fails, there's a motorcycle right at the end. But it sounds like, (laughs) Mandy, your family has a lot of interesting relationships, so thank you for sending that in. And on that note, I don't know if you can hear the police sirens in the back or whatever, but there's a lot of sirens going off in the back. On that note, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to keep up with the latest, stay in touch on social media. On Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter at Scandal101Pod, on Facebook Scandal101Podcast, Uh, The website is scandal101podcast.podbean.com and that is where I post the show notes where you can find the articles that I used. And then if you want to send in a personal scandal you have, please send that to scandal101podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Izzy, again, thank you so much for recommending this episode and you'll have a new episode next Friday. Thanks so much for listening. This has been episode 30 of Scandal 101.